Welcome to What Bubbles Up, a conversation over beers about ideas, where they come from, the process people use to get there, and how to know when they're truly great. Now here are your hosts, Phil and Barry. What's poppin' everybody? Welcome to episode 10 of What Bubbles Up. Woo-hoo. About ideas, where they come from and how do you know they're great. First of all, let's just say we took a little bit of an unexpected hiatus. It's been a little bit of time since we've uh, 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 had the pleasure of speaking to one another, but that was completely intentional. There's no other ulterior motives here, but we are very happy to be back uh, here uh, with a very special guest that I have known for a very large portion of my life, uh, mm-hmm. and we will get to know her in a little bit. But first off, most importantly, we start with the all-important question, Barry, what are you drinking? Oh, absolutely, Phil. So I went actually uh, deep here. I want to sort of throw a shout out to the People's Pint here. Uh, hmm. This is a this is a small brewery and restaurant here in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Uh, unfortunately, they are closed right now because of the oh. pandemic. So I want to throw them out a little bit of a shout out, a little voice of support. So they've got an Oktoberfest. Here we are oh, in October. Yes. I thought I would start to celebrate that. I'm going to fire this one up. Ooh, oh that's yeah, be good. That is a typical Oktoberfest. Uh, sometimes, if uh, they're they're true to it, they are brewed in accordance with the Reinheitsgebot, which is the German purity <laughs> law of 1549. Not to be confused, the German purity law of 1939 to 1945. Now, now you're just showing off, Phil. That's what <laughs> that's all about. There, come on. All right, what are you drinking? I am drinking a a standard bearer from our old friends in Delaware, Dogfish Head Brewery. They've been around mm. a long time. Uh, I enjoy them immensely. And this one's been in the fridge for, for a minute. Um, it is the uh, Flesh and Blood IPA. It is brewed with orange peel, lemon flesh, and blood orange juice. Let's give that a shot, oh, wow. shall we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Complex. Oh, yeah. All right. That sounds good. Mm. All right. Delicious. So, Phil, introduce our guest. Absolutely. Well, we are very happy to be joined by T.J. Jarrett, otherwise known as Tanya Jarrett. Uh, T.J. is a poet and an author. She also Mm -hmm. happens to be the older sister of my oldest friend in the whole wide world. I've known her (laughs) for 34 years, and when she's not playing uh, her role as poet and author, she is the arch nemesis of my best friend, Mitchell. Uh, But uh, uh, T.J., so happy to have you here. Well, it's it's done with love. I know that much. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Welcome to the show. So happy to have you. Thank you. How are you? Doing well. What are you drinking? I am drinking um, a Chardonnay, Macon Beloche, um, from Burgundy. I'm feeling very European right now. It's also yeah. what was in my fridge. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Convenience it trumps. Was, it was the thing that was cold that is in my fridge. I am yeah. not this. It someone brought this to me. I am not that good. I do not buy white wines recreationally. So, uh, well, well uh, TJ is joining us from the great city of Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, where she has uh, made residence. Uh, I guess for the mm. past year. Um, although mm-hmm. the apartment itself is new. We're very happy to have you here with us. We try hard to jump right into the middle of the story. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, for, for you, TJ, you have a very interesting background. So why don't we start off by just saying, how did you know that writing was something you wanted to pursue? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just did it. 
Um, I found myself when I was like 12 years old writing every single day. And I probably wrote every day until at least college. And it was only interrupted by drinking in college. Mm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But my mom's best friend, my mom's office mate, Paula Rankin, um, is a, well, was a poet. She died many years ago. Yeah. Um, but her like office mate was a poet and she was she was like asking me because she'd see me every single day because I'd be locked you know we, we were lot we were latchkey kids yeah and so some days we would you know instead of going home we would go to my mom's office and so I'd have to sit there do my homework you know spend quality time at Hampton University um and so her office mate asked me what I was doing and I was told her writing poetry and then she um, I show it to her and she looks at it and I think she broke a little bit on the inside. It was horrible <laughs> because I was 12. That's not <laughs> like, it's absolutely <laughs> it was horrible. So, uh, she actually gave me these little assignments. Um, like from the time I was about, you know, 12 or 13, she was like, okay, we're going to work on this this week. We're going to work on mm-hmm. this, this. week." And then when I was 16, I was old enough for, um, to, for my mother to enroll me in her poetry class. And she, Paula asked me to be in her class in part because she'd also be paid to read my work, which I think is probably more appropriate. So, uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I just, you just took, started. I, I love doing it. I was, a, I was a huge reader. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, how, yeah. how did you know, how did you know when, like, was there ever a moment when things sort of turned from, from it being something that you enjoyed and something that you were doing to something that you really recognize that you are quite good at. Like, how did you recognize when some of the things you were writing really started to be special? It's very funny. So I, I do have, I told Phil this story earlier mm. about how um, when I was 16, there was a master class. Um, Paula had talked um, Gwendolyn Brooks down to come down and have a master class. And I was enrolled in that master class. Um, just she it was actually an open enrollment for the entire community, which my mother told me I absolutely under no circumstances could apply to. Um, <laughs> of course. Yep. And I did not apply to it. Paula actually put my work in and I got selected as one of the six. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, because I was 16, I really probably didn't know how special that was. Um, I didn't know how special it was probably until about two years later, um, Gwendolyn wrote me. She annotated every single poem. She put Mm -hmm. it in this big, I got this piece of mail from Chicago. And my mom, you know, was like, it said G Brooks on it. She's like, who the hell is G Brooks? And she opens it because she opens my mail. She's that kind of person. Um, (laughs) And uh, she saw that, yeah, that Gwendolyn had um, annotated every poem. And she, you know, she calls me in Boston. She wraps it back up, sends it back to me. Um, And it was absolutely magical. However, I had no intention whatsoever. By the time I got to college, I was just like, being broke is for the birds. Like, nobody wants that. So mm-hmm. I did not want to do that. Yeah. And I actually, um, about, I'd say 24, I had stopped writing completely. Just stopped oh, writing. Oh, really? Really? Absolutely. I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, it feels a lot like navel gazing. If you take like, if you're taking like an hour or two out of your life every single day to write, um, that's an hour or two you can be connecting with your friends, connecting with other, you know, connecting with your partner, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a lot. So I, I stopped and I stopped until I was about 30, 33, 34. 
Um, I had a long-term relationship that just collapsed. Oh, gee, like a, like a star. It was horrible. <laughs> um, and I remember sitting there and like in just the havoc of it and kind of thinking like, what would, what, when was I happy? When yeah. was I happy? And then I started writing again. Oh, wow. Um, and I think it was at 34, I have something to say. Mm. Um, I didn't realize how good I was or that it was a calling until I was dating this guy um, when I, it was a New Year's resolution. Mm. Um, so 2007, January 1, I decided I was going to write every day again. And so I started writing and I was dating this guy that I met on January 3rd, 2007. Um, and I was taking time to write, but like, if you have a job, et cetera, like you're spending time, you're like, you know, you've got to like squirrel away or you're going to yeah. you know, have a yeah. relationship. You've got to go hide. Mm-hmm. Um, get that hour in and I was not going to, I mean, he was new. I'm not going to stop writing an hour a day. I'm just going to go yeah. hide in the bathroom, which is what I did, which is probably kind of crazy and why we're not together. But <laughs> <laughs> he thought I had a drug problem. And oh. no, I really had a poetry problem. And uh, wow. he like finds the, the manuscripts, reads them. And he asked me after he read them, he was like, that's actually pretty good. What were you planning on doing with that at some point? Yeah, and yeah. I said one day I want to go to Breadloaf, which is the oldest um, writing conference in the country, probably in the world, I guess. I don't know if there was writing conferences before that, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I wanted to go to Breadloaf, and so he actually picked out pieces and sent it to Breadloaf for me, and I got mm-hmm. in first mm-hmm. shot. Huh. Wow, absolutely bizarre, just freakish. So you um, actually owe something and- to this individual. Um, Oh, no, I totally, we still talk. He's not a okay, good. person. There's- good, good, good. <laughs> it's, it's probably also worth mentioning, TJ, that your mother was uh, the chair of the English department at Hampton University. And mm-hmm. that gave you access to some things that most aspiring I, writers may or may not have access to. I yeah. read everything. I met a ton of writers as a child. Um, I, you know... I, Knowing, I knew very early that um, writing is something that is culturally important. That is, uh, that is a way, and it probably informs the way because I'm definitely, I write poetry, but absolutely from a historical perspective, I kind of want to take um, the reader and bring them through a moment of history. That's kind of what I do. That's that's my mm. that's my gig. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk. So it's very important to talk talk about what our stories are. Um, so I knew that was a possibility in a way that other people probably would not know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's a good segue into your process. Um, and when we did the the preparatory conversation for this, um, mm-hmm. used the word discursive uh, quite a bit. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'm pr- <laughs> I'm pretty good with English, but I did have to Google it. Yeah, De- uh, define that for our audience, yeah. please. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta ramble a little bit uh you gotta yeah. amble about uh and find and find the mm-hmm. the, the truth it, in fact barry a hunt of a different uh, uh ah, mm-hmm. one of my favorite words yeah That's tell right. us about your process like break it down um you know usually so when i there's a process of just like writing a poem which is very different from my writing like a collection of poems um, writing an individual poem can just be, I, you know, I heard a turn of phrase. Um, I think this, you know, and usually if I'm just writing a singular poem, I'm really thinking about, um, an aspect of line, um, 
a repetition is also is a thing yeah. for me. I like I find repetition to be interesting in terms of um, the mnemonic quality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, where you bring in that repetition, why it's important, very much, um, very much like the Odyssey does to remind you of where the turn of the line is, mm-hmm. where you are in the story. Um, so usually it's an article of craft that brings me to a poem, usually. If I'm looking at writing a collection of poems, which is, I've done that a couple times now, um, usually I'm looking at, I have a project. It's something that I, you know, I'm staring at a moment in history and I want to understand it deeply. So it actually begins with doing a ton of reading um, and a ton of research about um, the time I'm entering um, my first book was about lynching. So I had stacks and stacks and stacks of books on, um, the nature of race relations, which is between about 1880 to about 19, well, I don't know, um, leading up to World War II, um, with, yeah, with, uh, with inflection points at 19 and 1919, 1920. Yeah. Um, so reading that, um, the fall of deconstruction, um, doing a ton of research on it. Um, I just really wanted to understand how something like that could happen. I have to say that I could have just waited a couple of years and I would be disabused of that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, right, right. yeah, yeah, just like really, but really kind of wanting to enter that. And then, after I found kind of my touch points of like, you know, these points in history I really like to I'm interested in, I started writing these poems started falling out of my head. Um, one was, um, I have one about Duluth, um, about a lynching in Duluth, which is they lynched some clowns, mm. uh, which I don't like clowns generally, by the way. <laughs> but I, yeah. they, there was a girl who went missing and was found dead um, when the, the circus was in town and they assumed that the clowns had done it and the clowns mm. had all been black men and they hung them. And so the very first line is, um, what was it? They, you know, they hung them in because it was already a circus. Yeah. Um, and to talk about, um, the, like, not just about the hangings themselves, which are then most tragic, but to talk about the social aspect of having a lynching, because there's not just, um, it's lynching as a public spectacle is not simply just about killing a man. It's about making a spectacle of killing a man. So you have the crowd that gathers, you've got, there's actually the clan have have books on something called lynchcraft, where you got to have like a rope of a certain kind of of tensile tension because you're going to drop somebody and it's not useful. Yeah. So, the, so the idea of that, of the, the ritualisticness of that was very interesting to me. So yeah. I kind of enter the, you know, the creative work from a very pragmatic place. And then once I can like um, situate myself in that, in that space, I can then make the creative leaps to make, take other places. Yeah, that, that's something we hear a lot from people. It's interesting. I think, <clears throat> you know, the common misperception i think is that the creative people just like you know sit down in front of a white piece of paper and start coming <laughs> oh, up with ideas and and what what we i think what phil and i hear time and time again talking with with people like yourself is there's usually a lot of research and very what i would almost call like non-creative work involved 
up front. Oh, and, and, and then, so knowing how much to research and then also knowing when to kind of switch then from, from just like diving down rabbit holes into actually creating something like, how do you know when I, to sort of switch from one to the other? I have actually called it filling the, filling up, the, I've called it filling up the bowl. I mm. fill the bowl until it's overflowing. Mm. So I have to know exactly what that space is and, you know, have a tactile and intellectual understanding of where we are in space and time. And then it overflows. And then the overflow is really where you find that creative work. Um, I mean, I, there were days I would, you know, lock myself into my writing room and I would turn on blues from a particular time. And I would listen to certain songs over and over and over and over again um, until something just clicked. Um, I, I also told Phil that like when I sit down, that first 250 words is just crap. There's no reason to even buy. Like I have to do it. I've got to clear. I've got to prime the pump. So yeah, I got to no. clean that out. That first 250. Because every time I sit down, I have an idea of that's what I'm going to do. And I've never is what I'm going to do. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. That first 250 words is about me. The next things that happen after that is about the work is about the character, is about um, the time or what I'm exploring. But that first 250 words is yeah. all about in my head and my ego. So it's it not, not just refining. It sounds like it's not just editing and refining. It sounds like you actually pivot and you actually turn sometimes after that first draft into mm-hmm. something entirely different. That so talk first, about that. Actually, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me is I was in grad school um, writing and I was gave it my gave some poems to a professor, and he looked at me, and he's like reading it. And he's like, "Huh, okay, so what are you gonna do if I throw this out?" And he actually balled it up and put it in the trash can, which, by the way, is traumatizing. And it's not <laughs> yeah, um, Barry's done that to me. I've 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 done that I've done that before. I've also had people after I gave them feedback, I said, "Hey, what do you think of my feedback?" They reach in the trash can, they take the crumpled up piece of paper, they sort of like unfurl it and flatten it out, and like. Because clearly they had crumpled up my feedback afterwards. I've had that yeah. too. That's well, a fun one. Also, there's a certain level of, I mean, I think, and the thing that he was teaching me, which he told me after he threw it in the trash can, because I was a little, you know, I was, was a little black woman drama in there too. There was some person involved. <laughs> but um, when he threw it out, is, the thing is, is that the brain, the brain will clean out all mm. kinds of syntactical problems. Mm. And so if you take that first draft that you wrote, throw it out completely, go to a white piece of paper and write it again, your brain will clean out a ton of um, syntactical and logistical problems because your brain needs to make sense of it. That first draft is kind of just, you know, again, about your ego, whereas your brain is really kind of wrapping itself around what are you trying to say? Your brain knows better than you do. Uh, so I'm going to try and wrap a couple of things into one topic, which is, um, mm-hmm. sort of the, the, the process of invention and, and the impetus and the genesis of, of the ideas. So, so first of all, let's talk about why you, your pen name is what it is. That's topic one. Mm-hmm. And then use that as a frame to go into how you, um, 
how you choose your topics because uh, mm-hmm. the 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 pen name TJ is is broad enough that it allows you sort of entree into broader topics, uh, broader senses of place, and and a divergence of sorts uh, that allows you to take in a lot of inputs and and create something new. So. So is that possible? Can we kind of take that journey? And we can talk about, you know, what, I mean, I, there's a very pragmatic um, reason I go by TJ. I go by TJ for the same reason, probably the same reason that A.E. Stallings and J.K. Rowling, um, you know, mm. changed their names because there's a, there's, there's a power in being androgynous. Yeah. Um, simply just because people are horrible. The end. Um, <laughs> enough problems. <laughs> I do not want to add to them. Yeah. Um, however, in terms of you know, in terms of what that gives me the power to do, I remember one of my first pieces that I had published was in the late Poetry Journal, and it was about um, it was the piece itself was about um, it was written as a piece written in the Times right after the massacre at the school um in chechnya there's a school in chechnya around mm. september 1st yeah i want to say 95 i don't remember exactly mm-hmm. the dates yeah about that um there were but the chechen rebels came in and they killed everyone in the school and so they the story that i read in the times was a retrospective um where they follow up with people who were survivors or people who had people who died there were interviewing people and um one of them, his name is um, his name is Volvoyev. His last name is Volvoyev. Um, I was he was talking about his his daughter who had died, and when his daughter died, he left her room exactly as she left it, mm. and his daughter and wife had died, and he left mm. all of their things in the apartment, and he would just move through that space and refuse to move that space. And so I'd written this poem about repetition. The poem, the poem is repetitive and about repetition, yeah. um, about that sense. But I, when I sent it to the late poetry journal, when I walked up, I finally met the editor after they published it. And he looks at me and he's just like, oh my, I, for some reason he thought I was Russian. Yeah. Uh, wow. Because I have one of those names that's just kind of TJ Jarrett kind of goes out and is this generic. Could be anything. American yep. name. Could be anything. And so he was just kind of like, wait, random black woman, what happened? Um, <laughs> yeah. Was absolutely confused. Um, and it's really just kind of speaking to the power of how people, you know, perceive your work. And yeah. I am really, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really sensitive to, um, being you know respectful to the work that you have um respectful to the the culture particularly if you're jumping into another culture my god yep, like yeah we we'll be respectful of that story that story is a universal story because i was so specific about that particular person about that particular atrocity yeah. um you cannot yeah. you know take on like you can't be um that historical yeah. moment it is, it is interesting. I, I think I think you're right. When you can be a bit anonymous or sort of like nondescript, then the work can yeah. stand on its own. Exactly. I think act, I mean Phil and I have talked with actors and and when actors start to become known, even if they're there to play a role, they kind of bring all their previous roles with them into a scene. So it can be very I mean, difficult. There's a very big difference between Jack Nicholson, yeah. who plays Jack Nicholson, and um I don't know. I was going to say Christian Bale, but you know. I was thinking him too. I was thinking Christian. Yeah. Bale. 
Yeah, you but like the like well, even like I would I would say Matthew McConaughey in in Dallas Buyers Club does that yeah. where he disappears completely. Yeah. Or yeah. um uh who's that guy who played the Joker not Jack Nicholson, the other guy who's dead. Um Heath Heath, Heath, <laughs> Ledger. Like, Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger yeah. who just mm-hmm. melted into the character. And yeah. there is a certain amount of self-effacement that has to happen when one is when one is writing the good when one's doing the good work yeah the good good work you were not there you were just there to attend the work coming to the world yeah you were just the medium you were just the physical body through which it moves yes. and i know i'm doing the right thing when i'm not in it mm, yeah, yeah. Like yeah it is yeah. just going on like i'm editing a little bit i mean like i i think every once in a while i remember there are whole poems that i've written that I'm just like, I don't have no recollection. My second, my whole second collection, I was terribly, terribly ill. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I was going like, I had um, anemia, horrible anemia. And I was just like, sometimes going in and out of consciousness, but I kind of thought that I was going to die. So I had to finish that book. <laughs> what? Which, yeah. Jesus. Just, listen, I'm Joyce's child. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, like, I just need to get that book done. That yeah. was important to me at the time. That was yeah. what's keeping me alive. So there's a certain level of like, I wasn't there, but the work itself was. And so I just kind of let the work go. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, I do wonder though, that, that, I mean, you're making choices in some of the topics that you want to get into. And mm-hmm. I mean, as an outsider, it looks like you're drawn to stories that have a lot of drama, that have tragedy often. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also drawn into stories around around race. And so even if they don't know who you are or, or really anything about you, I think that people can see the kinds of stories that you're drawn to. So yes. like there's, there's something about you, you that comes out. When the body work is big enough, clearly you have obsessions. Everyone's yeah. got them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, my obsession is really, um, I can tell you some like, you know, I have some Tanya-isms in terms of how my line is written. Mm-hmm. Um, my, like the, the poetic line, it actually, it, it forms as a second layer of punctuation. Kind of like a, if you're built in a poem, you're building the box in which the thought is supposed to travel to you. Um, so I, you know, I play with the width of the line because I want you to, the width of the line that every line should be long enough for a whole thought to fit into your head and you should sit on it for a second before going to the next line. Mm. Very much like code. Here's this one. It executes this. The second one executes that. The third one executes that. Um, so I have some things that I'm absolutely obsessed with that, you know, it's me because there is such, Mm -hmm. um, and there's a precision to my work. Um, I, there's a specific decision to my, to my diction. Mm, I, there's not a word there that I have not considered at Mm -hmm. least five times. Yeah. You know, exactly when I drop a word there, I mean that word. Yeah. And, um, there's a certain, you know, there's authority that comes with that. True. true. If you're knowing after you've read my work long enough that you know that I have not, it's not ill-considered. It's not accidental. Right. When you, um, uh, one of your, uh, one, one poem in your second book, uh, that's about, uh, Mississippi burning or the, the story mm-hmm. that surrounds Mississippi burning. Yeah. Um, you told me, a uh, just a harrowing story of, 
something seemingly innocuous is associated with something horrific. Um, and that, that is an experience that came from proximity of where your grandmother lived to Mm -hmm. some of the protagonists of that story. I just Mm -hmm. think it would be super important for, for our listeners to hear a little bit about that as a, as a way to take tragedy and make it into something productive. Uh, yeah. Um, so there is, there's a poem, I'm trying to remember the name of that poem, which tells you what a horrible poet I am. Um, it's it's <laughs> part of a series of poems about um, the murders of the Freedom Riders in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which happened, that the, one, my, my, my grandparents and my mother and across the street neighbor, like they all knew them, they all knew the Cheneys. Um, and when the boys went missing, um, they mm. met at my, my grandfather had a store and he had some room in the house. And so my mother, so when they go missing, what my grandmother, what my grandmother remembers is that they went missing, that the boys went missing and everyone knew something horrible had happened. Yeah. Yeah. My mother remembers is that's the day my grandmother taught her to dance Mm. and she taught her dance. There were some kids over, and my grandmother shuffles them in the back room and she turns on the radio really loud to drown out what the adults are talking about in the front room. And she shows them how to dance. And so you have this juxtaposition of this horrible act that has happened. Mm. Um, and my mother's memory of how slippery memory is, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it was, done, it happened on the summer solstice of, uh, 64. Um, and yeah. Yeah, so that's my mom was 13 years old. But that's and how I, I think that's how I think the writing becomes. I mean, if if I were to tell that story, I would tell it in a very generic way. But because you're able to kind of bring your whole self and some of your family experience yeah. into it, you're able to tell it from a different like I know you you I mean one of my final questions here is, is around the advice that you give to aspiring writers. And I think you had said something to Phil before about like, know yourself, right? Learn yourself and know how to bring some of you to to let it wander into the piece. I think that's an example of it, isn't it? Yeah. It's like you wander in, like you have, I mean, like you bring all the information that you have to a piece. Everything that you are goes into that piece. Um, And it's not, and what's interesting, particularly about that piece, is that there's no me in that piece. And actually, the speaker, um, the speaker of that piece is my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, my grandmother was dying. At the time, I remember my grandmother telling me the story. Yeah. Um, and the speaker is talking about um, about joy. Mm. The entire piece is, a, which is about this horrible thing that's happened, and you know you know, to my grandmother, teaching my mother how to dance and all of this going on. Um, the speaker is talking about this joy juxtaposed against this terribleness that happens behind her. Mm-hmm. Um, and her sitting down and knowing that in this house, she count, She also talks about how she counted her children over and over and over again during that period of time yeah. because she had to. Um, and she would wake, she'd sometimes like wake up in the middle of the night and walk the hall, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, like just count them over and over again. Yeah. Um, it yeah. seems but, to I mean, me it, that, uh, it seems to me that that is in and of itself, um, an analog to the craft of writing in some ways that you can take tragedy and turn it into something completely different. Um, that is, uh, therapeutic, but it's also extremely powerful. I, 
I don't think it's so much as, as I don't think it's so much therapeutic or, I mean, maybe it is powerful. I'm not, I, I can't give that. I think it is really focusing on when you have a speaker, pay attention to your speaker. It yeah. is not a you. Mm-hmm. And whoever your speaker is, you need to know every single detail of what that speaker is going to do. That speaker needs to be given full reign to say what is true for that speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, in that piece, the, you know, the speaker sits down and says to say, well, if, if I said what I felt wasn't joy, I would be lying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it was not your body's found in that swamp. Yeah. Um, which are just absolutely true. And I think like if the closer you work toward what is true, um, the more relatable, I mean, what is true resonates. There's a, there's a, like, it feels like there's a sound to it. There's a feel to it. I know what truth feels like. And so often we have these characters that these like, you know, these very flat, you know, 50 shades of gray characters who say these things that you want to put, you want to put these words like this Anne Rand, which is why Anne Rand sucks. She puts these thoughts in these characters' heads. Oh, and she moves them along. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's true. But yeah. It does not make that's not good fiction. But that's they feel a, like they feel like hollow characters because they, they don't feel like they're on something. Characters, yes, that's what yeah. makes them crap. Yeah. Also, she's crazy, but also that is specifically <laughs> what makes them crap. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, l- let me say this, uh, Tanya. I've known you over three decades, and uh, these couple of conversations have been some of the most enlightening and informative, and, and dare I say, uh, fun conversations I've ever had with you. And I thank you so much for the time. Uh, but uh, as we do at the close of every show, uh, we've we've uh, heard a lot and gained a lot uh, of knowledge yeah. from you, Tanya. So I think it's time we impart some of that wisdom onto others. So Barry, what are you going to steal from TJ? So I loved a lot of what um, TJ had to say, but the, the part that I that I think is just a really powerful reminder is the whole notion of when you write something to throw it out and then to kind of start again. Um, and that, in fact, doing that isn't starting again. What it allows you to do is to sort of create the thing in the more perfect form that you're not going to be sort of like burdened by all the architecture of what you sort of structured before. It's It's something I think about a lot because... I actually think that the way that so many people write these days on computers means that that first draft kind of never goes away. People are just sort of tinkering and editing. And I, I love the idea of opening up a blank sheet of page, whether it's digital or, or sort of going from like long form that kind of forces you to retype it. Because I agree with TJ. I think that that process of writing something and then completely starting over and writing it all again, that subconsciously your mind kind of puts it together again in in the better form. I just think that's great advice for people who are looking to tell a more powerful story. What are you stealing, Phil? Well, uh, the fact that you stole my uh, steal, uh, <laughs> um, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But, but, in, but in truth, I think the, the other important note that I'm going to steal and employ is sort of the melting away of you uh, in the work, um, turning mm. yourself as you know as soon as you fill up the bowl, and I love that phrase, to empty yeah. it out and and have you melt away. I think is just perfect advice because, especially in our field in the design field, um, mm. it's a showpiece for us. It's my portfolio. It's my body of work. 
but as you get a little older, a little wiser, and you start to lead teams, it's much more about the team that you had and giving them mm-hmm. the credit. Um, but but in this particular instance, it's about telling the story um, and and having the work speak for itself, which I think is probably the best thing you want to have happen. Because if you're doing the speaking, just like with a joke, if you're telling the punchline and explaining it, chances are it wasn't a very good joke to begin with. Yeah. So yeah. I think the same thing is true with poetry. I think the same thing is true in writing. And I think the same is true in design um, and in ideas in general. Yeah. So with that, thank you so much, TJ. Uh, Barry, why don't you take hey. us home? Sure. Well, TJ, I want to give you a quick chance to plug some of your books. Give us, do some plugs here so we can, people can go out and and maybe sort of see some of the stuff that you've written in full and buy it. Um, I have two books, um, Ain't No Grave, which is with with, um, Western Michigan Press. Um, I think it's being reissued. I know it's being reissued. I'm not sure when. Um, As well as a book called Zion with uh, SIU press um mm-hmm. out of um southern illinois um and zion which won the uh, crab orchard poetry prize in 2014 i think 2014 mm. the right year um and so that one is definitely about that's that's the book that second book is a one that's about the civil rights movement and my grandparent and my grandmother and my family oh, um so i'm yeah, working on a third um which is specifically about exile Mm-hmm. Um, I think is, you know, probably pretty appropriate right now. Um, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I'm working on that right now and I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, a lot have been written. I probably have another book somewhere in the pile of things that I have written, but I'm the book I am writing is not for the book that I'm writing. So I'm yeah. writing a book about exile. Like that's another thing I'm like, yeah. So that's what I'm yeah. working on. Well, we will be on the lookout for that. That's awesome. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> Uh, once again, as always, uh, thank you to everyone out there who is a listener of What Bubbles Up. Uh, we're thrilled you're with us. Please help us spread the word about What Bubbles Up. Share this podcast with your friends, like it, uh, and tell them and, and yourself to subscribe. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, a whole bunch of other platforms. And of course, you can always find us at whatbubblesup.com. Phil, do you uh, want to take us out? Absolutely. If you want to get in touch with us, please feel free to do so by emailing us at whatbubblesup at gmail.com or following us on Twitter at whatbubblesup. Once again, thank you so much to TJ Jarrett for sharing all of her thoughts and ideas on the process of writing and poetry. We will see you next time on the next episode of What Bubbles Up. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Bubbles Up. If you'd like to share some of your ideas or make a suggestion for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at WhatBubblesUp or send an email to WhatBubblesUp at gmail.com.